Hello and welcome to episode 22 of The Professor and the Hack with a new voice here. I'm the hack fill-in for Hugh Remitton who's on holidays, Catalina Flores, and we've got our professor as always, Professor Peter Van Onselen. Thank you for having me, Pete. Good to be with you. Where's Hugh? Oh, he thinks he can just take holidays right in the middle of a busy period in politics? Imagine that. Unbelievable. Where's the commitment? Gallivanting. I hope his bosses are listening. <laughs> so, PVO, speaking of trips, you just got back from one with the, the Prime Minister. I've got to say, as a political tragic, I was fascinated by the whole thing. But having covered, you know, a couple of these with Prime Ministers and Premiers past, what interests me is often what's not seen in the nightly news mm. because necessarily you can't fit everything into a package at night. So, you know, the body language, the things that might have been said off camera, what did you pick up by way of those kind of things? Yeah, look, the, the Prime Minister was a little bit more removed from the media pack than I thought he'd be. I don't think it was just me, but we might get to that. Uh, he he did have drinks uh, at one point. You know, he always nods his head back to the back of the plane where we we're all flying each takeoff uh, to say g'day to the assembled journalists. But beyond that, you, you, this being a US trip with the level of security, and I suspect it's even higher security because of Donald Trump being in the White House, uh, you spend a lot of time waiting between events. You know, you get ushered extensively over time through the security and then you have to sort of sit in pockets at different moments. So the behind the scenes was a little bit dull, I, I have to say. Uh, the, the one thing that is not a political notice point behind the scenes, but it's it's a US thing. I, I did a piece for 10 Daily on this rather than did a television package. The extent of the homelessness around the White House really shocked me. Uh, I have travelled there before as a tourist, but I didn't notice just how prevalent it was. Literally the park directly in front of the White House uh, and Blair House where the Prime Minister was staying is directly opposite it as, as well. It was filled with with homeless people. I mean, I know that the US doesn't have the same social security system that we do and homelessness is broader than that, but that actually just surprised me, the, the level of that, because uh, our hotel was right, you know, if you like, on the other side of that park. So every night when you do pieces to camera or when you do crosses, uh, you'd be doing them either from that park or, or having walked through that park to get closer to the White House. Uh, and it was just a real stark contrast between the glitz and the glamour of this state visit uh, and that reality about the cultural difference to Australia. Yes, we have homelessness, but not to the extent and not as obviously so, I would suggest. I wonder if that's sort of changed under Trump or whether that's always been sort of a factor. I think it's always been a factor. It's just the nature of the US, I suppose. Um, but nonetheless, you know, the the contrast of it was most prevalent in DC, uh, less so in Chicago and New York. The, the travel was interesting, though. This was the first time that the Prime Minister's plane has uh, been able to go international like that without multiple stops. The old 737 or whatever it was was not nearly as agile. Well, this is a form of fuel tanker, I believe, so it's got the capacity to fly that little bit further. Um, but it, it made it easier for the assembled media, I have to say. You know, whatever you think of the plane, uh, it, it did make it easier not having to, I am told, this was my first trip, but compared to having to, you know, go commercial and then try to get the link-ups and all the rest of it, particularly going through customs. So that was a bonus. So it's interesting that a lot of the explosive things might have happened uh, on camera. The um, the Oval Office spray, I know in the past it's usually been ushering the cameras, quick, you know, handshake, quick remark Not and out you go. <laughs> so this ended up being about a half an hour sort of press conference. Yeah, it was extraordinary. I mean, I, I only asked a question right near the end, um, but I the American journalist told us 
that you can expect anything here. We could have easily been ushered in and out uh, as a pitcher opportunity with almost no comments, certainly no questions answered, even though uh, journalists always throw questions. The, the, often the, the president and the, and the travelling party don't respond to them. But we were warned, warning's maybe not the right word, by the American journos that this could be very different, expect anything. And sure enough, uh, we were lucky enough to get over half an hour worth of questions to the point where people almost ran out of things to <laughs> ask him with the assembled journos there. He was so willing to to respond. The, the poor old Prime Minister, he was like a bystander. You know, he got the odd question, uncomfortably so sometimes. I remember on one of them, uh, Donald Trump, you know, saying some fairly controversial things about China. I think it might have been to the effect of what a – global threat they represent and then sort of turning, I'm paraphrasing here, but turning to the Prime Minister and saying, you know, privately you had some very similar views, you know, would you like to comment? And you know, sort of the look of shock on Scott Morrison's face. And he look, you know, critical as I might be of some aspects of him, he did quite well to navigate um, between not agreeing with everything Trump says which can get you into hot water, but not dissing him at the same time such that you leave the guy hanging who's given you the invite to this state visit. It's not always the easiest walk to walk. And you've made me think of something there, actually. One behind-the-scenes thing that I noticed, and he wasn't making these gestures to me, but I saw them, a lot of gestures back and forth every now and again between the PM and some of the journos, not quite eye rolls, not getting caught on camera, um, but sort of almost sort of smirks vis-a-vis dealing with someone like Trump. You know, it was it was a subtle recognition of some of the awkward moments along the way without him going so far as to perhaps say something that then ends up becoming something that backfires. Right, so it was registered on his face or in his body yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So I think with the China question, you picked up, I guess, a great example of how unpredictable Donald Trump can be. I, it made me wonder the sort of briefing that was that had to have taken place before um, Scott Morrison mm. arrived, which would have been, okay, if he does this, do this, or if he does that, do that. But I think when it comes to Donald Trump, you just have to throw everything out the window and just go, go with well, it. Well, how do you prepare, right? I mean, at the end of the day, he's such a, a maverick in political terms. He would be a maverick if he was a, a backbench equivalent uh, under their system or ours, much less as the president, much less, therefore, as the leader of the free world. Anything can happen with him. Morrison, ex-marketing as he is, ex-party political as a former New South Wales state director, he's probably better placed than most to navigate through it. Uh, someone like Malcolm Turnbull would be more likely to get caught, I think, in that situation, same as a Kevin Rudd even, notwithstanding his diplomatic background, because of a mixture of hubris or engagement. Morrison is so strategic, uh, and that can be a good or a bad thing, but that level of strategy from him, uh, he's thinking that half a second ahead of what he says before he says it, knowing how dangerous reacting to Donald Trump can be. And so I think by and large he got that right. I mean, I think he made an error going to that rally, though. That sort of, if you like, backfired. I don't know if his advances and his mind has realised just how political that was going to be because it was sold to us as, oh, he's going to go to Ohio, the president's going to come along, it's the opening of a box factory by an Australian businessman, you know, Mr Pratt, la, la, la. However, then once we got there, and indeed to the build-up to it, it was quite obvious that, whoa, hang on, this is, you know, a bit more than that. And, of course, Trump was never going to visit Ohio, a key swing state, without turning it into something more than that, and that is absolutely what it was. I think that dawned over time 
on Team Morrison, that they were getting themselves in the midst of something quite partisan that perhaps in hindsight they would have tried to manage that a little bit differently. I was going to get to that and you've covered that remarkably well. Um, The UN Climate Change Summit, was it a mistake for uh, our PM to be so defensive in his speech to the UN? Uh, Look, I don't know whether it was a political mistake in the short to medium term for him because it plays to some of his base and some of the middle Australia cynicism about climate change activism as opposed to the issue of climate change. But personally, I mean, I thought it was a missed opportunity on the world stage, uh, but I don't think he would necessarily see it that way in, in a regret sense. I mean, it was an interesting contrast. I remember on that last day, you know, he started the day standing in front of a pile of garbage visiting a a, a recycling plant, you know, sort of not the most sort of statesmanlike image, but it's it's what he's trying to project as this idea that I'm the practical implementer of climate change action as opposed to the grandstander in front of the UN. But yeah, he he went further than that, didn't he? He he repelled a lot of the the criticism. I, I think there's a risk for this government that climate change swings the other way as a political issue to where it's been in the last few years. You know, it was in Kevin Rudd's favour vis-a-vis John Howard. It sort of came the other way as Tony Abbott bashed the carbon tax and it's sort of been there ever since with a hint that it may be pivoting when Shorten was there but it never did. You get the impression now that maybe as a political issue that consciousness about climate change might be coming back a bit Um, but Morrison isn't entirely out of touch with that. Uh, He's just got a bit of a a where-to from here at the moment. Uh, But, yeah, you're right, his rhetoric went a bit further than that, I guess, at the UN. We know that while uh, you were all there that the impeachment sort of inquiry started to gain legs. Um, Before we go into that, how do you think overall Scott Morrison sort of handled himself with the unpredictability that is Donald Trump? Look, not not, not too badly, I I would have to say. I mean, it's, um, you know, dealing with Trump can be hard. He is, as I mentioned, very strategic about how how he did it other than that rally. I think by and large he he did okay. He wanted to make some of the commentary that he made about uh, about China, I think, not just as a sort of sock puppet to Trump but because he actually had those views as well. Um, but they did end up looking like they were on the same page on a lot of things and that I think is going to be the interesting one over time. Uh, I, I think, Especially on China, I would have thought. Oh, absolutely, because they're so important to us, right, as a, as a trading partner. But that said, uh, I, I think that with the amount of controversy with the Chinese vis-a-vis everything from security matters to you name it, I, I don't think that Australia wants to be too shy about it. I like the idea that Australia stands up more to China personally. We've talked about this, Hugh and I, in this podcast before. You know, They're not a democracy. They're a totalitarian dictatorship. They're authoritarian. They don't respect the rule of law. Free speech means little to nothing to them. And they also don't respect international norms, even by the US's standards. And the US barely respect international norms other than at least being a democracy. So I don't have a great deal of sympathy for China, but whether we like it or not, they could break our economy in a heartbeat um, by adjusting their exports and import structure. So we have to be a little bit careful, but Morrison is a conservative leader. He wanted to send a message that you know, if we have to choose, we choose the US, but we hope we don't have to choose. I mean, I don't think that's an unreasonable position as long as he doesn't get too wedged on it by someone like Trump. Mm. Moving on to impeachment. So we know that Australia is being dragged into it with the the request of us to investigate Alexander Downer. I wanted to ask what, I mean, the way it looks to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the way it looks to me is that the US is asking 
Australia and Scott Morrison to effectively discredit uh, Alexander Downer. Is that is that sort oh, of the way look, the right way to read it? Maybe, but I think this is a bit of a beat up as an issue personally. Uh, the Ukraine thing, the exact opposite. I think that's a huge issue, and and that's what the impeachment's about. This, I believe, is one of those classic stories that because it's Trump and because it comes off the back of Ukraine. And because it looks like it's down a V the government with the government giving the AOK to the US that they'll help with this investigation, which is in a sense an investigation of what Downer was on about. I, I can see optically why there's an interest in it, but I think it's a bit of a storm in a teacup. There's nothing unusual about one ally saying to another if they've asked for assistance with what is an above the board, whatever you think of it, it's an above the board official investigation by the Attorney General in the US for international assistance. It's already been asked for in writing and received and recognised in writing by Joe Hockey as the ambassador when corresponding with the AG. The PM has then echoed that in his conversation with Trump. I don't think Downer's done anything wrong, just to be clear, and I don't think that the government would find if in any of its cooperation that he's done anything wrong, apart from the fact that he's a partisan political ally of theirs. He's also uh, our diplomat, not theirs, and and he acted above board from what I can see so far at least. So I, I think it's a bit of a beat up. Because mm-hmm. I can't see what the administration gets out of this in terms of uh, aiding their investigation to, cl- to clear the president. Oh, look, politically there's nothing in it for Australia, but politically there's probably a lot in it if we said no. I mean, could you imagine Donald Trump's reaction if he'd asked Scott Morrison for assistance in this official investigation which he'd already had a yes in writing from Joe Hockey about and then in the conversation he said no, Mm. then I think there'd be a political implication, God knows what. Mm. Uh, Anthony Albanese, when he was critical of the government over this, and I do agree with the opposition leader that the government have answers, uh, questions that they have to answer about this a bit more detail, please. It's been the sound of crickets for two days since this happened from the Prime Minister. He's suddenly media shy and not doing interviews and, and not doing media conferences. But asked himself by the assembled journalist to Anthony Albanese, what would you have done differently? He quickly ended the press conference after that was getting asked a few times. Because what could you do differently? You get a phone call from the President of the United States, it's an official investigation, can you help us with it? What are you going to say, no? Um, yeah, but I guess at the end of the day the, the US won't get what they probably think they will from the Australian investigation. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, Well, maybe not the US, Trump. Trump, yeah. (laughs) Trump's looking for some smoking gun that's going to land Downer in trouble. They they seem to think, or at least one of his former aides seems to think that Downer's some sort of sleeper for the Clintons, uh, which is, of course, absurd. The idea of Alexander Downer doing the bidding for anyone but a Republican, if he's going to do it for anyone in the States, is passing absurd to me. But uh, look, I mean, I think this is going to be so insignificant in the context of the US over time, even though it matters to us because they're much more embroiled in the Ukraine stuff. All right. Well, I think, um, PVO, there's uh, there's more I wanted to talk to you about uh, the trip and specifically about how the PMO has uh, been treating the media, but we will take a short break. G'day, Sandra Sully here. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you're looking for more to listen to, head over to Short Black with me next. I talk to all kinds of amazing women who are making a difference. Good women, great chat. Welcome back to The Professor and the Hack with me, the Hack, Catalina Flores and Professor Peter Van Onselen. PVO, we're talking about your US trip and... Um, I'm a hack too. <laughs> you are a hack too. I should make that clear. At least let me wear that hat occasionally. <laughs> 
PBO, we were chatting about the US trip and uh, the PMO, how they handle the media. You made uh, some uh, messages quite public on Twitter. Can you take me through I did? that? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I did a I, I did a story for the nightly news, which the Prime Minister's office and I, as I understand it, the Prime Minister himself took exception with. Uh, I'd take exception with them taking exception with it just quietly because there was nothing in it that was factually incorrect. They just didn't like it. Well, guess what? You know. We live in a free media society. Uh, I thought that a democratically elected prime minister, even if it's not a democratically, a democratically elected PMO around him, would know that. Uh, but they, you know, saw fit to complain in any which way, uh, and that was their choice. Uh, then the following day, and I tweeted this as well. They gave uh, interviews ahead of the trip to every single free-to-air network except for us at Network Ten. Uh, and again, I don't mind that. That's their choice, but at least own it. Uh, and so then, you know, uh, Gladys Liu, surprise, surprise, on Wednesday got herself into a bit of bother with some more controversy on that ongoing saga. And I did a piece on that that the government didn't like. And then uh, the PM had a bit of a crack at me uh, in his speech uh, at the uh, at the midwinter ball not unfairly uh, at one level because it was from this podcast actually um, <laughs> where I said that uh, I'm happy to wear as a badge of shame him winning uh, if he does win. But nobody – look, I'm not complaining about this, by the way, because journalists are the last person, people that complain about being taken out of context. But if you actually listen to that whole podcast, I did actually say I'm happy to wear it as a badge of shame because it would be such a good story if he came back and won that the shame would be worth wearing for the spectacle – of what happens in the aftermath. But, you know, as I say, <laughs> I've probably over the years taken enough people out of context. I'm not complaining. But what happened out the other side of all of this was there was text messages flying in my direction from the Prime Minister's office telling me, you know, no need to come on the trip, you're not going to get any access. They were basically, and I don't use these words too pejoratively, but bullying, threatening. That was the tone and the tenor and the style. Uh, and so I thought, you know what? If you think that's appropriate, then I think it's appropriate for people to see those. And just for the record, by the way, uh, there are far worse texts that I've been sent from those guys than the ones I've published, um, and they know that because they sent them. Uh, but I just wanted to give the public a bit of a flavour of the way these officers operate, quite frankly. And I don't mind if they, you know, sort of shut us out. That's their right. I actually prefer to do stories where you're not on the drip from officers, but you can actually just say what you think, uh, free of any of that sort of side of the way things work in, in journalism sometimes. But yeah, it was an interesting um, response in the aftermath of that. I you know, still had a perfectly good working relationship with sections of the PMO, um, but I quite like the arm's length uh, that they seem to be threatening. You know, this idea of, you know, you're not going to get any drop exclusives if you have the temerity to tell your viewers what's really going on. To me, that's a bonus. Uh, I'd rather continue to go down that path. I'm interested in the response because I know you you got quite a quite a strong response from Twitter and, and mm. the public. Have you had any sort of sense of what they've thought of that? Because just from a personal um, anecdote, I've obviously been covering politics for a long yeah, time. And um, my husband of, often says, because he's obviously the one I vent to most, yeah. uh, he often says if the public knew half of what you know, journalists put up with, they would be outraged, they'd be appalled. And so I, I feel like you putting it out into the public like that is quite an interesting way of... Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't do it to an MP. 
Uh, and I've never done it before, actually. But it's interesting, since moving into the political editor job at 10, I haven't really dealt with staffers before because when I've been a columnist at the Oz or, you know, filling airtime on on Sky as a, as a host, I've always, as I continue to do, I've always dealt directly with the politicians and the leadership, if you like. The party leaders aren't as fussed about what you are or aren't doing. So you deal with ministers and shadow ministers and backbenchers, you know, who you're interviewing half the time. The leaders' offices, when you're doing the nightly political bulletin, they care, and I'm sure it would be the same at state level, and I know you've covered federal politics too, so you know it on both sides. They care what you're doing, I now realise, every night, and their offices are trying to manage what you're doing. And that's good to the extent that they can provide you with a contrasting view that you can accept or reject when you're doing your package, and it's good where you can almost use them as a quasi-research tool uh, if it's going to suit them to help you to find some information out when you've got you know busy deadlines. But uh, I've never experienced staffers before until being in this role where they're so aggressive, mm. you know, and not, not all of them. Some are great, but some are really aggressive, and including on both sides at different moments. There were some heated things that came my way from Team Shorten right near the death knell of the campaign as they started to sense that things were a little bit off track for them. They weren't a great fan of Jonathan Lee, as I think some people know. Uh, and that was that was interesting as well. But I just I just thought oh, I wouldn't do it to an MP because mm. they've got skin in the game. And mm. if an MP takes an issue with something that I write or say, then, you know, you've got to be prepared to have a robust exchange, however um, hardcore that might get. But I just took the view that if, if a staffer's going to be heckling me by text, you know, I don't owe him anything. Uh, and, and why should he be able to get away with doing that as though it's acceptable conduct, uh, you know, why? Yeah, and there's a big difference, I guess, between sort of putting your voice, your your opinion or, or uh, your feedback to a story that you did um, and and crossing the line into bullying. There's a big difference. Oh, yeah, and look, I'm no shrinking violet, far from it, but, you know, this idea uh, about, you know, I think one of the texts was something along the lines of, you know, I, I don't, tend to send packages to the Prime Minister, but I'll send this one to him because he'll remember it forever, as though there's going to be some sort of repercussion from that. Uh, I like it's nice to be remembered. Uh, I uh, the, the other one, you know, the, the, the other tone of them about, you know, being cut off and why bother coming on the trip, I mean, apart from anything else, it's just juvenile, mm. I think. And they weren't the worst of it. Uh, they were just a snippet of it. The, the reaction on social media, as well as anecdotally from people, both on their side and the other side, has been has been interesting. You know, I imagine some people suddenly worry that you put out those sort of private texts publicly. And as I say, I've never done it before. Uh, I wouldn't do it to an MP because uh, I've no doubt over the years received much more brutal ones from MPs, as I'm sure you have as well. Um, but when it's a, a staffer doing it and repeatedly doing it and and not a you know so gratuitously i think it deserves to be call, called out and i guess for me i was heightened in that view as i reflected on the package just sort of if i'd made an error in the package even though i still don't think it would have been appropriate to get those texts that's one thing but when they just don't like it because they don't like being reminded uh, that the prime minister on a number of occasions has said one thing and then done another well that's not my fault i mean the the, the package that they complained about was about 80% grabs and 20% script by me. So it was his own words. They just didn't like them all getting put back to back. So just to wrap up on, <clears throat> excuse me, just to wrap up on this um, this topic, would you say the reaction or the response from the public has been generally positive to those tweets or, or negative? Or oh no, very very positive actually. Uh, if anything, 
the one slight worry that I had as a working journo was, oh, what are some of my contacts going to think? You know, are they going to suddenly worry that we've had incredibly frank exchanges by text over the years and, and that I'm at risk of releasing that. And fortunately, and I think that was a legitimate worry to have, fortunately that hasn't been the reaction, at least not from those that I've spoken to, because they realised that these were unsolicited texts um, from a staffer, not an exchange understood to be in confidence back and forth uh, with a member of parliament or a minister or a shadow minister. So that's been fine. The, the public reaction, you know, through social media or whatever else it might be, was overwhelmingly positive, which I wasn't necessarily sure it would be. I expected actually more um, partisan trolls from that side uh, to be having a red-hot crack at me, but I didn't see too much of that. I'm sure staffers will be uh, vetting their text messages from you from now, <laughs> or well, to uh, look, you, I should I, say. <laughs> I, if, if I don't get texts uh, from staffers, uh, at all about anything other than logistical arrangements, then that would suit me to a T. <laughs> <laughs> so, Vivi, I'm moving on to big economic news this week. Interest rates being cut to a new record low, 0.75%. I mean, there's only so much the RBA can do, can they? I mean, what, what They've do- only got three cuts left, haven't they? I mean, <laughs> negative interest rates aren't a realistic phenomenon, even though it's theoretically possible. It, it's, it's akin to a car uh, having the handbrake applied at the same time as the accelerator. You've got interest rates being dropped with the aim of stimulating the economy at the same time that the government tells us that the surplus must be met no matter what, which is in a sense a handbrake on the economy because it means less money going into it because you're running surpluses, not deficits. Uh, But the Reserve Bank are doing all the heavy lifting here, aren't they? I mean, they're putting rates down, they're talking about quantitative easing to go with it, uh, yet the government won't do fiscal stimulus and I understand the politics behind that around the surplus but it, it, not everyone agrees that the Reserve Bank should be doing what they're doing. You know, so there's some arguments that this is unnecessary, particularly from within government. And even more so, I would argue, if the banks aren't passing it on, which, you know, they certainly don't appear to be, at least not in full. So I guess uh, I guess the question is, because the last two haven't seemed to have moved the economy much at all, um, so the question is, why will this one? And but it's also one of those things, isn't it, that you can't prove? Because if you didn't do it, would the economy worse? You know, that, that, that's one of the – like the, that's poor old Kevin Rudd found himself in that situation where he said, oh, I saved the country from recession, recession by, by loading up the debt. Uh, he can never prove that, uh, even though uh, some economists agree. We can't really be sure if those cuts have or haven't had some effect, even if, as you say – quite rightly, they, have, they haven't boosted the economy. Maybe they've stopped a bad situation being worse. True. And then there's a school of thought that perhaps it could be scary, it could be backfiring, it could be scaring people who look at you know, record low interest rates and think, you know, the, the economy is in a bad way, let's just tighten our belts even further. So I guess there's always that as well. Yeah, and you've got the Treasurer in the midst of the declining interest rates with the Reserve Bank Governor talking about how weak the global economy is, how sluggish the domestic economy is, and then you've got the treasurer out there talking up the economy. You know, he reminds me of Leslie Nielsen off the naked gun standing in front of all the blow, blowing up building behind him, telling everyone there's nothing to see here, move <laughs> on. Uh, he's got to do that. He can't exactly mm. talk down the economy or else it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, but you do have all of these strange dynamics going on. So I guess then what does what, – where does it leave the government? What do they do? I mean, obviously they don't want to uh, um, imperil the, the surplus, but, I mean, they are spending in areas like drought and um, yeah. and that kind of thing. Is that Do you think that's sort of one way they can probably – they can at least try to stimulate the economy? Yeah, well, well, I mean, the drought spending's at one level 
highly necessary just on the issue, but then it does at least have that stimulatory impact. There, there's some question marks around how much stimulatory impact we're getting from the tax cuts, uh, whether it's corporate or, or income, because people are saving. But that's no bad thing either, by the way, because we've got private debt in this country is a much bigger issue than than public debt, even though public debt has doubled over the last six years and was you know zero before Labor got stuck into it in that period that covered the GFC. So it's Look, it's really hard to know what the government should or can do. Might look for what little it's worth. My view is that we've missed opportunities on both sides of politics to do major economic reforms of the 1980s style microeconomic reforms, which are necessary to stave off these sort of circumstances. We're now a little bit in a similar territory to between 77 and 83, pre the Hawke government's microeconomic reforms, where the economy was sluggish in the context of a difficult global economic environment and there wasn't a lot we could do about it until we had a government prepared to stump up with major economic reform. This government's probably not going to do that because they're in a third term hoping to win a fourth and I don't see a new Labor government if they ever get into government doing that either because they, they don't look like they're on that page ideologically. Talking about reform, the retirement review was sort of sneakily um, announced during grand final weekend. Were you as cynical about that as I was? I mean, I, I <laughs> led my package trash. on that. I, yeah, what was it, Friday afternoon? Friday afternoon, taking out the trash time. Yeah, look, uh, do you think that that is an area that potentially, I mean, we're talking about stimulating the economy, uh, the deeming rates I know is one that the seniors uh, groups are saying that that's one way to stimulate because if you change the deeming mm. rates, then then our, our pensioners will, will be able to spend more. Are you in that sort of camp? Oh, yeah. I mean, but only as one of a raft of changes, you know, but absolutely that would be something. But I'm more critical broadly of this so-called retirement review and what's already been ruled out. You know, we're not going to look at franking credits because one of the three uh, experts doing the review is an ardent critic of that. According to the Treasurer, we're not going to look at the idea of tax arrangements around the family home being changed or indeed accessibility to the pension when it comes to the family home being changed because that's too much political dynamite. Dynamite. We know that a death death duties aren't ever going to be looked at because that was used as a campaign theme against Labor even though Labor wasn't actually arguing for it and it was talked about in the same context of all sorts of radical ideas even though most of the OECD actually do have death duties. We forget that. We only don't have them because Sir Joe abolished them and then all the old people moved up to Queensland so every other state abolished them as well. So, you know... It's a review when you're not having a review at one level. And I'm led to believe, I don't know how true this is, but I'm led to believe by liberals that I talk to, ones that aren't worried about their texts getting exposed, they they, they tell me uh, that Josh Frydenberg said that we would have this review off the top of his head uh, when dealing with a media conference and was therefore obliged to have it. Now, I don't know if that's fair or not. If Josh listens to this podcast, text me. I promise I won't publish what you say. But (laughs) the the... It's an interesting phenomenon if that's the case because it's a bit like an episode of The Hollow Men if that's the case. You know, the number of times I remember Rob Stitch in The Hollow Men uh, running around talking about this is great, you know, we look like we're really onto this and big picture and a can-do uh, government and it's all just about the optics. It, yeah, it wouldn't be the first time there's policy on the run, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I strongly recommend that. I know it's not on 10 Daily but <laughs> The Hollow Men, I tell you what, get, get yourself such onto good... that. That's such a – it was only two episodes as well because they, they filmed it before the reality 
mirrored the art. They did it during the Howard years, I think, where, where we didn't actually get governed like that. And then it died after its second series. And then all of a sudden uh, you have the Rudd years, the Gillard years, God help us, the Abbott years, you know, and all the rest of it ever since. And now you go back and watch The Hollow Men and, and I reckon you can almost parallel every single episode to something that has happened since then, whereas it seemed far-fetched when it came out. Now uh, I think things are a lot worse than the satire. There you go, PBO. You finished our uh, podcast with the recommendation. For a different uh, for, well for a different done. media organisation. It's not Hugh that's going to be getting in trouble for not being here. It's me that will be in trouble for actually being here. Well, PB, I've thoroughly enjoyed our chat. Uh, thank you for having me on The Professor and the Hack. Until Great to next, chat. Until next time. been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.